The following program is intended for mature audiences. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yeah. With your hosts, James Seabrook. Okay, you were paying attention, but the idea is clear in my head, but translating it into English is not. That's brutal. I understand the hypocrisy. And Joey Roach. I don't even know what you do. I was just told you were the man. Some people would say I'm overconfident. That could be my ego talking, though. I'm trying to think of the right word. Oh. Yeah. Must be a tough word. Next subject. Uh, you're bored with this one? You don't hear us gassing on about it. Give you in the horn. I don't think it means what you think it means. By the way, you know, when you're when you're telling these little stories, you have a big mouth. Here's a good idea. What are you even talking about? Have a point. Why are you airing personal matters with complete strangers? It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Let's start today's show with something that is useful to musicians, but not necessarily to studios. Uh, let's dive in just a little bit into this whole local management um, business model type of environment that bands find themselves in. Yeah. Um, we were just talking off air about uh, a couple of them and how they work. Um, <laughs> People we can't. Well, and, 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 and I mean, we don't need and to mention any names. We we're, yeah, we're just, we just want to talk about, um, about the, the models itself and maybe some pros and cons about them. Um, one of the, one of the more common business models for artist development slash management that we've seen, um, do you want me to just throw that in the garbage? Just you, you go through, I'll, I'll recap while you're chewing. Garbage over there. <laughs> Joey can't talk with a mouthful of stuff and he's looking for a garbage for his wrappers. <laughs> um, so, so this, this, um, model that, that we've seen. And I think, I think, um, what was the name of that, 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 uh, that hard rock metal company that, uh, that was in existence for a while? Oh, um, um, raised fist, raised fist. Yeah. So they were, they operated under this, under this type of model. Um, but they weren't, they weren't by, oh goodness, more notifications. They weren't by any means, um, unique to it. No, uh, they weren't making money off of music anyway. The well, bulk of their money was yeah, drugs. Allegedly. 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 <laughs> the, there, there was other things to make people not care for that company anymore after the whole being, yeah. or like the whole sting operation and stuff that happened. <laughs> anyway, I, I was, um, I was introduced to that, that particular model when it was starting to take hold in the industry, 2008-ish. Um, and that model was more like a subscription service. Um, the You pay the management company X amount of dollars. And the, the one that I was offered in 2009 with my band was, was something like 230 a month. Um, and they would guarantee one show every weekend um, in the... It was in the greater, it was in like through central Alberta, all within like driving distance after work type of thing. Right. Um, and if they would, that one show per week pays for the cost, then it would be worth it. But well, and, and, in and my the, experience with these things, they never do pay for the cost. Yeah. And, and, and for the, for the real working bands, it, it was a really great deal, but for the, for the, um, for the weekend warriors, which is what we were. Um, cause we were all in our thirties and forties at the time. Um, it, 
it didn't make any sense because we weren't making, we weren't making enough money. We weren't making that much money from shows anyway, right? To to, to pay for it. Um, but the idea was, and this is what uh, the guy's name was Paul. Um, I really enjoyed conversations with him. Um, but the ideas were his idea was. Um, this is where it starts and the, and, and they want to work. They want to work with you one-on-one to improve the stage show. Yeah. To make sure that you get uh quality recordings, which of course the band has to pay for the, uh, the development company isn't going to pay for, which yeah. is fine. Um, uh, they work, uh, they don't work as producers, but they, they, you know, act as kind of a network bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they, their biggest focus was all of these shows were getting you prepared for big showcase events where you could, uh, where they would set up, um, you know, two or three showcases for Canadian music week type of thing, or, right. um, or any, any relevant, relevant, um, bigger event, they would try to get you in. Um, and, and so it was a, it was a really nice business model when it worked. Uh, obviously raised fist was an example where it didn't work. Um, well, they're an example where it didn't work because they were doing a lot of shady stuff. Uh, even if you ignore that, even if you ignore that, the, there were, I remember hearing about one band where they focused a lot of their time and energy on, and then a bunch of other bands where they just didn't want to put in the effort to the same level. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that comes down to, I've seen that I've seen buddies paying like $150 a month for this management company with the, with the, uh, idea in their heads that the management company was going to help them get shows that can help further their careers only to turn out to be like, we're paying 150 bucks a month to do nothing. For nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a magazine subscription. I have my sound on sound magazine subscription and I, I haven't even opened out of the wrapper the last five, uh, the last yeah. five. I'm very hesitant to, with any management that wants like a subscription type of model. Yeah. 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 In my opinion, they should, it's a profit sharing. You get a percentage of what comes in because then you're actually going to actually fucking do something. Right. And that's, that's where this model can really go, can really go sideways. Um, the, the company that I talked to in 2009, they interviewed people and they wouldn't take on any, any clients or they claimed they wouldn't take on any clients that weren't willing to do a whole bunch of work themselves. And I know at least three cases of local-ish, like Alberta-ish bands, because they were they were cross Canada. Well, they were mostly Alberta and Ontario, but um, I know at least three cases where that management company um, stopped stopped taking money from bands uh, and and rejected them as clients, or terminated them, fired them as clients, whatever, um, because the bands weren't putting in the type of work that the management company wanted them to in order to become successful. And therefore it didn't make any sense for them to take their money because they can't do anything for a band that isn't going to do anything for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then you, of course you have, you have the opposite example of the local guys that, that were just taking, 
this monthly subscription from whoever's 10 or 12 bands or whatever and and putting a lot of effort into one or two bands but not much into the rest of them yeah so there's definitely there's definitely some some bad potential in that um now i don't know every time i hear like artist development or management i don't even believe the terms anymore like a lot of companies a lot of these companies um they throw around those kind of terms but they don't actually mean what like you and i have been in the in the industry um i know what artist development over a decade means right but but people use it these people are using it for is not what it actually is Right. And that's why, that's why the actual, the actual words they use to describe the companies yeah. don't mean a lot to me. I, I want to, I'd, I'd much rather interview the company and, As would I. and, and, and make a decision based on what I see. And that was one of the reasons, um, that, that one company that I got involved with, it was one of the reasons I was really excited to be involved with them, their particular model, um, whether or not it was it was successful or not. Their particular model was really, in, in my eyes, it was really well um, put together and, and it had a lot of really great potential um, because it, it didn't rely on, it didn't rely on the management company doing everything. It rewarded artists doing the work themselves um, while creating- and in return, the management was gonna help create help create a lot as well right and so yeah. the so the bands that put in more and and their their fees were pretty low if i remember correctly like it wasn't it wasn't it i want to say it was like 40 to 60 bucks a month um for the for the fees and they called it they actually called it a subscription type of thing or no they called it a membership that's what it was um and of, and of course they'd have they were trying to create a community in yeah, throughout this membership and and I think it worked really well uh, or it, it could have worked really well um all things all things being equal um and I like that I like that idea where it's kind of a co-op yeah back in the 90s this I know I'm dating myself back in the 90s um I was signed to a record label that I nowadays I wouldn't call a record label but as a as an 18, 19, 20 year old kid, I was excited to call it a record label. Uh, but I was part of a, uh, part of a label that really was just a co-op. Um, it was one guy in one band that was kind of the head of it. Mm -hmm. And he was a big, uh, Spinal Tap fan. Okay. So it was called Flesh Tuxedo Records. (laughs) I still love it to this day. Um, but the whole idea was, was a co-op. Um, whenever something needed to get done, whenever something needed to get planned, uh, everybody brought their particular skills to the table and, and did what they could. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, there were, there were three bands on it at at its peak. So really not a lot, but the idea of creating that sense of community was, was really, was really great because it just worked. Yeah. Now, n- n- none of us had any success. Um, the uh, the main band they worked their tails off uh, before the record label started, and even after the record label started. And you know, they I think they were eight records in by the time they were done. Hmm. Um, but uh, it, it, that idea of community and 
co-op really appeals to me as a model for for a quote-unquote management type of company. Um, but then after all these years, because this is, this is my 22nd year in the music industry, 21st year in the music industry, something like that. Mm-hmm. After all these years, the one business model that I keep coming back to that just seems to be of more value to everybody is the old one. Yeah. The Take a percentage. The or, commission one. Yeah. You know, like you're hiring this manager to be a, basically a commission sales representative on your behalf. Yeah. And to, to do what he can to make the band more successful. Now that can create a really lazy band. And, and, and it can, but a manager can, a manager can fire but a band too. A so. manager. Yeah. I mean, the manager should be managing the band. So thus talking with the band, because yeah. you're essentially entering a partnership where the manager is mm-hmm. agreeing to manage the business. The band is willing, er, is agreeing to do the other side of it. Could, could we, could we look at it like a, um, like a business side, creative development side of a business. Like you have, um, you have a creative development side that's creating the product, mm-hmm. developing new products. Yeah. Um, and maybe even marketing those products, especially nowadays, you're marketing yourself. Yeah. Um, whereas the the manager is coming in to kind of manage the business side. Yeah. Sales, They're doing the boring stuff. The, like yeah. <laughs> looking at your bills and, and like yeah. balancing your books and... Yeah. Negotiating with uh, people who maybe you want to w- deal with uh, who don't necessarily want to pay your asking price. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I, I really do think that that's, that is the, just the overall better model. But I, I mean, it, it is the better model because it's just human nature. Like, if you give somebody just a flat amount of money, regardless of the work they do, they're not going to put all that much effort into it. Mm -hmm. Or if they do, they're not going to for very long. Like they'll, they'll maybe do it for a couple months and then eventually it'll just peter down and they'll just not be motivated to do anything. Yeah. Cause they'll realize they'll get the money regardless. Whereas (laughs) if it's like, I don't know, you get 10% of everything we make. They're going to try to get you a lot of money. <laughs> well, and or at least that's the hope. That's the hope. Like, I mean, yeah. if that's not necessarily going to mean that the person's going to go out of their way, but 10% commission's pretty good. Yeah. And and I, I think the standard for a new act is 20. It's one fifth, you know? Yeah. For a new act that a man, like an experienced manager would have to like, yeah. Actively, um, work with, uh, yeah, I could see that. That's a lot of work that you're taking on. Well, and, and me being in my shoes now, um, I, 20% sounds totally fair. If I could have, if I could have a studio, a salesman for the studio that would work on commission, 
I would happily give them 20%. Now you're going to get people being like, can I be your studio manager? I've, I've, I've had that for years. (laughs) I've, I've been approached at least, at least quarterly, um, by people that want to do that. Hmm. Yeah. What if I sell for you? You pay me? Do you be a salesman? <laughs> they never sound like that, actually. That's me being rude. And then the, what? You ask, like, for the resume? Uh, no, I ask, uh, I ask about their knowledge of the Edmonton music scene and, and um, their knowledge of social media and their knowledge of Google ads and Facebook ads and Instagram yeah. ads and that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of thing that they would be doing. They'd be yeah. viewing a lot of social media and... Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of one-on-one networking. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the big one. And I imagine they fall short on a couple of those fronts. Every single one of them. Yeah. Every single one of them falls short on, um, on, uh, a deep network in the Edmonton music scene. And almost every single one of them falls short on the social media side. It's like, yeah, I have a Facebook account. Cool. How many accounts have you managed? <laughs> well, and, and, and that's, that's exactly it, right? Um, if someone, what I've done a couple times is I've offered to people, um, if they bring me clients as a test, if they bring me clients, I'll give them 20% of whatever the client spends right off the top. Okay. Um, once, once the invoice is in. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I try to be really fair about that. You know, as long as you let me know that you sent this client to me with the expectation that you're going to be paid, I'll pay. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a lot of work that I don't have to do. Right. For sure. Yeah. And it's been, um, it's been pretty unsuccessful i've, I've had uh, that just two... means that those people aren't very good at and that proves the point right they're they're not motivated they're not motivated by that mm-hmm. especially once they realize oh you don't charge two hundred dollars an hour aren't you a recording studio aren't studios you know you know like two thousand dollars a day this isn't uh, hollywood this well, isn't la <laughs> this isn't la and la like that's only maybe 1% of the studios there. Well, um, uh, uh, with the audio department, they're working towards trying to get $1,000 a day. But audio departments got that reputation they're behind the them. Big boys, yeah. They're the big boy in town. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like a place like this, we're, we're not the big boys, we're the working class. Exactly. This is basic. This whole place is basically a toolbox um, for me to bring bands yeah. to work on. No. Which I like. Yeah, I like. Uh, I, that, my goal isn't to have a audio department. Like, if you know, the path leads to me being able to be mm-hmm. an active, um, yeah. Uh, market challenger to the audio department that would be awesome but I'm not stupid I'm not going to actively <laughs> do that in the f- yeah. beginning yeah. I'm going to be low to mid low or whatever low mid tier right 
Hey, I was thinking, I was thinking about this, um, uh, last week. I don't know. I don't think we were talking about it on the podcast. I think it was after the podcast. We were talking about, um, about other like functional studio models. Um, and, and, and I was thinking about this. I wanted to go down a different path today, but let me brain spew for a moment. <laughs> um, when have I ever stopped you? You never have. You just sit there and take it. <laughs> um, so, so I was thinking about this particular, this particular idea and, um, and it just occurred to me how to expand it. So let me run this through you. Um, main studio, like we have downstairs. Yeah. But then smaller studios for all the full-time engineers, smaller control rooms for all the full-time engineers, someplace where, you know, like, like Roland uses this space for him all the time. Right. What if we had, what if we had like three of these small editing suites that are like, this is James's studio. This is Joey's studio. This is Roland's studio. Yeah. Um, and then it seems to be what, like what a lot of, uh, partnership right. studios do. But then the big studio downstairs yeah. becomes just the communal space and it's no one's particular studio. No. It's... And it might sit empty when it's, when none of us have clients or none of us are doing an analog mix or whatever. Yeah. Um, the reason my brain is going down this path is Roland had, I think they're done now, but they may not be. Roland had a, uh, um, a metal band, mm -hmm. uh, had, had a local band down there, yeah. um, Wednesday through last night. Yeah. And by all accounts, the session went really well. They were doing 12 hour days on the weekends and Roland, Roland came in yesterday and he says, I'm just so exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing I found was I have, I'm working on a, um, that Arab pop music album that I'm mixing. Right. Okay. And it's turning out really well, except I couldn't, I couldn't do any mixing while they were here because they're so loud. Right. Right. Like all the amps are up to 11 and, and between that and the drums and, and, uh, Thursday and Friday, they were playing all live. And then over the weekends, it was overdubs and multi-tracking and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> and so, so what I ended up doing was I ended up just, you know, packing my shit and taking it home. Mm -hmm. And, and I worked a combination of my kitchen table, my balcony, cause it was too hot inside. And I, uh, I went to a buddy's home studio cause he was away and I stayed in there for a couple hours cause his basement was cooler than anywhere else I could find. And so I, I was, I was literally all over the place, but I thought if we had, if we had like just three, you call them offices really. Yeah. Cause it would be mostly digital setups anyway, three offices that were isolated enough from each other that you could actually get some work done. Um, and then the big studio on the basement, just double brick walls for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Right. Does that seem like, does that seem like overkill? No, no, that, that seems fair to me because in that way more work. And if you have like three or however many engineers, like yeah. the collective community, those individuals have built up, 
could lead to the main room being used more often. Yeah. Thus bringing more revenue for the the studio. Gotcha. Remind me to come back to this um, after the podcast is over because uh, there's some more. There's some. There's some potential. There's some potentials in that conversation that could lead to something being real um, in the near future. Okay. But nothing's in stone, so I can't, I can't mention it on the podcast yet. Right. Sorry for the ugly teasers. Uh, <laughs> we're, not, we're never going to deliver on, but we've done that a lot. We, we end our shows a lot with saying, Hey, we should do this in the future. And in, I don't think we've ever done one of those. Yeah. Um, okay. Can we take a, uh, we're going to take a quick time out. Okay. Um, and we'll be back. I want to talk about, what did I want to talk about? I'll cue this up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There, there's, there's a couple of, a uh, couple of guitar things that I wanted to hit you with. Cause I think you'll enjoy this. Okay. Okay. So we'll be back. Um, we'll be back in like two seconds after this thing plays. I think we're going. Yeah. It looks like we're going. Okay. So we're back. Um, we're going to totally change gears because we can. Um, one of the things that I've asked you, I've asked you in the past uh, is about the difference, the real difference between Epiphone and Gibson. And I've, I, I got a, one of the newsletters that I'm subscribed to actually did a, uh, a breakdown of the real differences between them. Aside from price, yeah, I mean, you're paying for a better quality product, better build. Fair enough, right? Um, like a Gibson does feel better than an Epiphone, although the higher end Epiphones are still like still pretty nice on yeah. par with like the lower end of Gibsons. Like a a truly nice Gibson is like in the two thousand dollars range. Canadian prices, right? Yeah. Yeah. American, yeah. it's probably like 17. According to this, according to this website, and they're comparing, they're comparing model to model, right? Yeah. Um, like the Les Paul standard traditional to the tribute plus, which is, um, average price difference in American dollars is 1580. Same model. Okay. In American. So that's what, like $8,000 difference Canadian. Um, I, I know that joke's getting old. <laughs> Let's see here. I should have reviewed this more carefully before I, um, brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where's, um, this one is in wood selection. Uh, Gibson tends to use higher quality traditional tone woods. Yeah. Um, those branched out significantly in recent years. Um, Epiphone uses a variety of woods, often utilizing a higher number of thinner plies, but that's not always the case. They tend to use mahogany a lot. See, and I really like mahogany. I like mahogany too. Yeah. But let's face it, it is a cheaper wood. Mm -hmm. Gibson's going to give you a bigger chunk of maple on your, your yeah. Les Paul with the flame or a quilt or whatever finish you got on there. It's going to be a thicker ply right. of maple than what's on like an Epiphone. An Epiphone might be like an eighth of an inch. You might, but uh, your Gibson may be 
I don't know, a quarter of an inch. And really just the top? Uh, yeah, it's just, they Is just it? put it over top of like another wood. Cause like a, f- a fully maple guitar, like that would kill backs. <laughs> That's heavy, dude. Uh, well, Gibsons are heavy anyway. Oh, I know they're heavy, and that's why they don't make them out of maple. <laughs> there, I've I've seen somebody like make a, a Les Paul like guitar once out of like solid maple, and then he like lifted it. I guess he met like actually weighed it, and it was like fifty pounds. Oh, that's nuts, man! Like, do you want to have that on your shoulder for an hour? I guess I, I always, I actually always assumed, and clearly this is one of those false assumptions that I've made over the years. I actually always assumed that, that, um, a Les Paul, for example, yeah. was a solid piece of maple. No. Always assumed that. No, it's just a thin slice of maple on top of whatever that, other wood they have. Does that thin slice of maple actually, actually. People say it does. I think that it doesn't probably it depends on what you're playing at the end of the day if you're playing clean stuff yeah uh it is certainly going to make a difference yeah but if you're playing like heavily distorted shit then it doesn't make a difference it's just you like the finish <laughs> yeah yeah that's fair my um my custom prs copy downstairs um is solid mahogany through and through I mean, I just always assumed that I, was the way it was. I enjoy, I think majority of my guitars is like a mahogany body, but then it has, in most cases, a sheet of maple over top. Mm. And that's just because maple has some really interesting cuts that give it really cool looks. Like quilted maple is one of my favorite finishes. I don't care about the fa- flamed maple too much unless you do like a flame with a burst and not like the traditional freaking Les Paul burst. I-, I like the more untraditional bursts, like say have it like a almost silvery gray in the middle. Then you have like a little bit of purple and then it fades to black and oh, yeah. like all those colors fade into each other. Right. That appeals to me. Favorite Les Paul that I ever saw. Um, and I'm, and I never picked it up to play it, but mother's music. Do you remember mother's music? Yeah. Um, when they were on white Ave where the Royal bank is now, um, they used to have, and this is not anymore though. No, no. The Royal bank is still there, isn't it? They didn't move. It doesn't matter. RBC. Yeah. Yeah. No, they moved. They're not beside the SO anymore. Are you talking about TD? No. Royal bank. Oh, you're talking about across the street. Yeah, I'm talking about across the street from Gordon Price. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, they're still there. There was another bank that was blue, but I can't remember the name of that has moved. <laughs> All right. So, so they had, they had a. It was the Les Paul was baby blue, and it had a carved wood finish mm-hmm. um, of a bald eagle. Um, coming through, like, like coming through the uh, the bridge, right up to where it meets the neck, just it was just gorgeous. Oh, that almost sounds like a custom shop. 
Probably. Yeah. And I don't know why Mother's Music would have had it. Um, um, to have a f ridiculously over, well, not overpriced, but a ridiculously expensive guitar, I guess. Yeah. People buy those things. Yes. Here in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. There's like a guy who People like... People buy those things everywhere. I know. But the, <laughs> it's just weird that the, these people who claim to be I don't want to say claim to be good players but they they definitely do think that they are good players <laughs> and then they buy these ten thousand dollar guitars that end up just being I mean at the end of the day that's all they ever are anyway is yeah. works of art but like they're just there on display to be on display right uh, some of these people have like essentially like a multi-million dollar studio essentially never use it no no it's just they just like just spending money cool on this toys stuff. to have right yeah yeah um so meanwhile you, people like you and i are just like can we actually <laughs> use it money. <laughs> um <clears throat> i would never buy a ten thousand dollar guitar <laughs> if if i had oodles of money I might, but I've, I would have to, I've like, only played, I've only played two guitars in my life that I felt were worth more than a thousand. Um, and one of them was a, was a J2000, J2000. I think that's what it was. Um, that I found at, uh, Giovanni. Right. And it just, it just had all the nice characteristics that I like out of my $600 acoustic guitar that I've had for 22 years. Um, 22 years? I got it in 96. Yeah, 22 years old. Um, and uh, I borrowed I borrowed a friend's... Um, what is the Gibson? The J45? Is it a J45? Uh, that's the Dreadnought acoustic guitar. The forty-five, right? That's the that's the the popular. It's the popular the, the, acoustic guitar. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I borrowed I borrowed a buddy's one of those. It was like it was like a forty-five hundred dollar guitar, um, and it was. I had to play acoustic guitar on for a client on like eleven tracks, mm. and uh, and he offered to lend it to me, so I took it. Um, it was it, it was brilliant, but I wouldn't spend thirty-five hundred dollars on it. I wouldn't spend that much money on a j45 either i think it's worth maybe fifteen hundred dollars mm. in my opinion maybe but i could be spoiled because i get to yeah. touch these things all the time <laughs> yeah and and this one but there are some guitars where I, I play it and i go oh i would spend two grand on that he um he bought that new from uh from the downtown um lung mcquaid mm -hmm. he asked them and this is another one of those things why I love Long and McQuaid. And we should get we should get them to sponsor this show for the twelve people that listen to this show because um, <laughs> we talk about them so much. Uh, he asked them to bring in three, and he yeah, guaranteed and they that, will do it, and, and they guaranteed that he would so buy much one. As we hate doing it, we will do it. <laughs> but he bought one. He 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 sat with all three of them in their little acoustic room yeah. and uh, picked out the one that he liked. Yeah, at least he was reasonable in being like. Just bring in three. <laughs> I don't think it's reasonable to do any more than that. But it, people do demand more than like that. Like bring in five, bring in 10. 
I've That's never just... had to actually do anything like that, but yeah. there are customers out there that would just be like, <laughs> what other uh, J45s do you have here? And it's just like, are you serious, buddy? Like, yeah. the, the difference is, is going to be so mild, and I highly doubt that you have the the talent to ex- <laughs> like actually realize it. Yeah. yeah. That's just, just me being pessimistic so going down i get to see these people every day so <laughs> i know there's like uh, maybe one out of a thousand people that would actually appreciate the build quality of what yeah. the j45 is most people who own a j45 shouldn't own a j45 <laughs> i had a buddy another buddy that owned a j45 and he didn't like it i don't care for him i i prefer the taylor uh 314 over the j45 oh yeah we talked about this around christmas time i played a um, seven thousand dollar taylor at uh at um i've played a ten thousand dollar martin once oh yeah how was it uh that was an experience yeah that's what i was thinking about this one um at, at uh, st john's music yeah. and it was an experience it was everything i would want out of a guitar never own it though yeah no, I, I would never pay that much Not money for it. Because I can't afford it. Because, I mean, that's certainly a huge reason why I'll never have one. <laughs> but, but also... it's not the main reason. <laughs> yeah, the, the main reason is I, I don't... It, it's not an experience that I need to have all the time. Yeah. It was like an experience that I am glad I went through and it, like had the opportunity to do. Right. Although I was still pretty early on in my guitar playing, and so... I might have played actual nice guitars enough to where that experience is downplayed now if I were to play something of equal quality to that guitar. I I have this I have this thing whenever I'm whenever I'm looking at uh whenever I'm looking at guitars. I don't pick one up, but I'll sit there and I'll tap the body and I'll walk around and I'll tap the body until I find a resonance that I like and then I'll pick it up. Mm. And most of the time, I, most of the time, I'll walk through an entire store and not like any of them. Okay, yeah. So speaking, of I guitars, know somebody who smells them. And <laughs> if he doesn't like the smell of the guitar, really? Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, okay, uh, so I wanted to take. I, I actually had this planned. This was part of my show prep. Which right. I'm, I'm trying to do, um, uh, from, from talking about Gibson's and Epiphone's, I wanted to do this. Why did Gibson do that? Six, Six questionable guitar choices from the brand's storied past. Yeah. Well, good thing about the future is that Gibson doesn't have any control over their choices now. It's the shareholders. Yeah, but it's, um... It's not like the shareholders are uh, are going to control every every minute detail. Oh, they're no. just going to have they're just going to be able to ex- exercise more power. Yeah, and they still have to the shareholders still have to represent someone to represent them. It's not like yeah. you can have ten thousand. Well, the person who was in charge of Gibson, yeah, before that's led to all the what, all their trouble. A yeah. lot of these decisions, like robot tuners. <laughs> that's in this list I that's know. in this list it didn't work 
and th- they decide to put it on all of their guitars for a full year of which then they had to uh comp replacing those tuners mm. with actual tuners yeah you've complained about that a lot on this show well like i got to experience it and let's those robot tuners stop working they just seize eventually mm. that's unfortunate yeah and it's not customizable at all it's yeah. just here's these handful of tunings that majority of people will use that's and, that see that that to me is is where is where the failing is i mean the hardware issue they could eventually work out and get that working right sure um, cause technology advances are great, but if you can't put in a custom tuning, you know, like half my music is written on, is written on odd tunings that probably wouldn't be in a standard yeah. set of tunings. Well, I, I don't play any standard tuning. I, I play. Uh, there you go. Right. Like the closest thing I have to a standard tuning is like one and a half steps down from E standard. One and a half. I think it's one and a half. Maybe it's two. So you're dropping down to like C sharp? Yeah. Man. All right. Yeah, one and a half. I hope you got a heavy ass gauge of strings. I do. I uh, have 13 to 60s. Yeah, yeah. That's uh that that seems <laughs> adequate. <laughs> uh, okay, so to the list. The um the synth guitar in 1987. Yeah. Um I saw one of these when I was on the road at the end of the nineties. And they are fucking weird, man. Like it's, you know how, how some acoustic guitars you can snap in like a, like a pickup into the sound hole. Yeah. It kind of looks like that. Yeah. And it's goofy looking. It's got the, it had this extra cable hanging out. It's just all sorts of dumb. Yeah. There's and they, better versions of this nowadays. Nowadays. Yeah. But this was 1987 and I'm sure it was fine for the day. Um, and then of course they mentioned the robot tuners. We just complained about that well it was a huge money hole for them because they had to like i said like anybody who wanted to replace those tuners uh who bought a 2000 i think it was a 2015 hmm. i think it was earlier than that it was like 13 but you maybe you're right whatever yeah. you know it what? was an entire year of production that they had all robot tuners and anybody who want like because of the backlash of that, mm. they offered to make it so that anybody who wanted to get rid of the robot tuners could bring it into a Gibson dealer and they would just, like Cor- Gibson themselves would pay for it. According to this, it was 2006 to 2010. 2006 is when they announced it, but like uh, there was an entire year where it was every Gibson had robot tuners. Yeah, so maybe this was 2010 where they actually came out. Anyway, um, this is one of my. This is one of the more interesting ones. Was Les Paul himself had custom pickups? Um, uh, Made by Gibson. Yeah, Les Paul Professional, the Les Paul Personal and Les Paul Bass were launched in 1969. The personal was like one of Les Paul's own modified guitars, right down to the microphone jacket on the top edge of the body. Microphone jacket? Strange. Have to look into that more. Um, But Les was a weirdo that built his own stuff. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, for... had a, and it had a, the personal and the bass. Oh yeah. The personal had a volume, a bass treble and a pickup selector plus an 11 position decade control quote unquote to tune high frequencies, a three, pos three position tone selector to create various in and out of circuit mixes and pickup phase in and out switch. Oh yeah. Okay. So you could flip the phase on the pickups. That's cool. Uh, both guitars need a special cord with built-in transformer because it's super low output. Um, Terry Kath of Chicago had one crazy cool uh oh yeah and then in the mid 80s <laughs> design your own design your own color scheme which led to all sorts of ugly 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 colors of guitars <laughs> although that one looks cool i like that that's um not that i would ever want an explorer but i wouldn't mind an explorer I think they're just ugly looking guitars, man. Like, they're not the most attractive looking, no, but they do sound cool. Yeah. I'll give you that. Uh, oh, yeah. this crazy weird, what headless, is it called again? Uh, a headless body with a head. Um, the, <laughs> uh, the original inspiration for Gibson's Corvus and Futura models introduced in 1982 was the recent was the recent popularity of headless guitars. Steinberger, um, he's one of their designers at, in, at the time, had started the trend... Oh, no, that's a guitar brand. What am I thinking? Started the trend with a headless electric bass in 81, and for a while, a succession of makers, big and small, seemed obsessed with the idea of lopping off a headstock or two and going headless. Gibson was no exception. Uh... The research and development department came up with a design that had a deep notch in the body base where the tuners now absent from the missing head would need to reside. Bruce Bolin was head of R&D, which was still based in the old Kalamazoo, but uh, Gibson's marketing team was located 500 miles away at the new factory in Nashville. Uh, <laughs> it just looks like they took like the scrap wood of what was left over <laughs> and made it into a guitar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, Bolden says, marketing saw our prototype and they went, oh no, we've got to have a head on it. <laughs> so they put what we called the limp dick head on it <laughs> and totally screwed up the design. <laughs> it does look... Uh, kind of looks like cock and balls. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, um, the Junior Special... Um, that was just what, what that was. Yeah. That just right. looks like a regular, it just looks, yeah. I had a, I had a junior clone at one point. It was a really thin version. Um, what they didn't point out is mm. for questionable decisions by Gibson is like them buying out a bunch of companies yeah, but to make their the, stock prices go is, up. This is all about guitars. This is all well, about guitars. This isn't about, but, this isn't about business but practices. The, the fun, funny thing about <laughs> the business is the guitar part of the, the Gibson brand is profitable. Yeah. It's everything else they've done. Just yeah. That screwed everything up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. The They'll good news is. Here. Ukuleles. Don't they already make ukuleles? I don't know. I bet they do. <laughs> yeah. 
It only makes sense right now because everybody, like, oh my God, ukuleles are selling like crazy. I don't understand it at all. Because of all the ukulele metal that's going on on YouTube. That might be (laughs) contributing a little bit, but I think people are thinking it's a fun and easy instrument to play. And then when they find out that ukuleles have a hard time staying in tune, they fucking bring it back and like it doesn't stay in tune yeah. it's a nylon stringed instrument you have to tune it every time you play it <laughs> i've only had a couple of them in oh, but okay one of them was an electric ukulele yeah <laughs> there's i've been asked recently if we had a uh you if if we rented ukuleles with a resonator on it what? Yeah. <laughs> and I was also asked if we rented four-string banjos. And I was just like, four-string banjo? What? In what world does that exist? Four-string banjo? Yeah. That's the norm. No, the norm's five. No, the norm's four. Five. Mine was a four. There's four main strings, and then there's a fifth string in the middle. Interesting. I was sure that mine was a four. The norm's five. That's fair, but... You got, like, a, a really high string, and then you got, like, a the four that kind of follow the... The violin tuning. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have, yeah, a really high string above the, the low whatever note yeah. that is. I don't know what banjo tuning is. Yeah, man. I remember retuning my banjo to um, guitar tuning so that I could... Actually play fake, it? Fake out playing it, yeah. Instead of getting a... Banj guitar. Yeah, banj guitar. Banj. Or yeah. a ganjo. Ganjo. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the um the 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 live banj guitar ganjo musician freakout that I had? No. So 2008. <clears throat> 2008, I'm working at beer gardens at the Airdrie Rodeo. Yeah. Yeah. It's every bit as awesome as you would expect. Well, I used to live near Airdrie, so. <laughs> right? I can um, imagine. I had family in Airdrie for, for years, and that was my connection. Um, but I'm, I'm, there's two different bands over the course of the eight or 10 days or whatever it is. And each band is, they're, they're just doing the cover band thing and the beer gardens. And it's an indoor beer gardens, but there's no walls. So it's just kind of like sheltered. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was walls on two sides or something, but um, had it sounded okay. And and it was a relatively fun gig. I was isolated, which was awesome. Um, I didn't have to deal with drunks leaning in and I didn't have, a, I didn't have an iPad walking around in the crowd. <laughs> that's that's the new thing that seems to be happening to me a lot i hate it i hate it um although some of the ipad software is better laid out than some of these digital consoles so that's okay anyway so on a thursday night uh, i think it was a thursday night uh band brings up for two sets their first two sets they bring up this special guest and he apparently was somebody they played a handful of his original songs um which was fine um but he wasn't all that good and he had a band guitar okay um and he just strummed his band guitar ganjo whatever like like an acoustic guitar didn't actually play it like to sound like a banjo 
And of course, because it sounds like that, it's just this, it, like banjos are not meant to be strummed. No, it's a single note instrument. And, and this guy, yeah, so this, this guy, he's strumming it and it just sounds like a, like a mid-rangey mess, right? Yeah. Like it might've been, it might as well have been going through a triple wreck, right? And, and so, so he's complaining all night long that I can't get enough clarity through his monitor. And so finally, near halfway through the first set, he starts in between, like during a, during an instrumental or something, he starts stepping out in front of the PA. So, you know, you know, can I hear it in front of the PA too? You know, like, man, you must be really bad at your job because I can't hear the banjo at all. And I'm like, here's the fucking banjo. It's cranked. You can clearly hear what a crappy mess you're making. (laughs) And there was nothing I could do because all he would do is, is strum chords on it. Like, why does it sound like a banjo? Because you're not playing it like a banjo and it's not a banjo. It's a, it's a, it's half of a drum with guitar strings. Yeah. <laughs> Banjo guitars don't sound like banjos. They, they can sound close enough if you play them right. Well, yeah, but you but, have to play it like a banjo. You have to do the, yeah. the, the, the weirdo. The weird picking thing. Yeah. The rolling picking thing. And. And sound like you're going to rape a fat guy. That is a good movie, by the way. I haven't ever seen the movie. I've seen that. Really? I've seen the part with the kid and the guy doing the dueling banjos part. And I've also seen the scene where the fat guy is made to squeal like a pig. <laughs> Everybody's seen that. And that's, that's, a, that's an awkward, stressful moment. It's so much worse than that. I mean, like it's, it's such a brilliant, it's such a brilliant suspense, uh, terror movie that it's worth watching even to this day. And you get to see a young Burt Reynolds, um, showing off all his muscles. <laughs> I think is, is it Burt Reynolds? Yeah. Burt Reynolds is yeah. in deliverance. Yeah. Um, anyway, good movie worth watching. Hey, uh, uh, let, let me throw another one at you. We're running out of time here, but. Um, I just watched, uh, one of the Spectre sound videos this morning as I was, as I was setting up, mm-hmm. um, testing mics. And so, and he had, he did a, he did a cheapest gear on Amazon yeah, the type Pro of review. VLA or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, his... I was half expecting him to have like an elitist opinion about it, but I was actually pleasantly surprised when mm. he was just like, this is a solid piece of gear. Well, they're. It's nice. They are solid, and I hate the fact that bedroom warriors just don't like it because it's not UAD or mm. API. I, I'm, I'm bringing it. I'm, I'm. I've decided after after seeing that video again. Mine's been sitting here collecting dust for close to a year now. Well, since October, I've decided I'm just going to bring it back. Yeah. I I need it's, a couple extra channels of compression while the while the DBX yeah. is uh, down is down, and yeah. it doesn't look like it's coming back. <laughs> So, um, no, it, yeah. it's a solid piece of gear for like, I think they're four or 500 bucks. Well, you can pick them up used for 250. Yeah. 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 If you, yeah, you can get them used for a really good deal. Like, and I mean, they sound great. And as, uh, Glenn says in his video, like there's big studios with them mm-hmm. and big studios have been buying them since they were announced because it is a dirt cheap tube compressor well it's an optical compressor with a tube gain stage well yeah yeah 
they sound great. Yeah. And yeah. like you crank them and like they can get some pretty nasty yeah. in a, a cool way if you wanted it to be. Well, I used to run, I used to run vocal, my, my vocal bus through this thing and I never had a problem with it. Never had a problem with it. They're good. Yeah. I, like I said, I hate that there's a bunch of bedroom warriors that think that they know more than they actually know. Yeah, that's the gear sluts thing. Well, yeah, that, that's more or less what I'm talking about is gear sluts. Because let, yeah. let's face it, the professionals have left gear sluts with the exception of the odd few that are promoting like services like uh, that's fair. Slate or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm gonna bring that down. I um I have those two uh those two RNCs that are sitting there as well. Mm -hmm. And um I'm gonna try them out, see if I can get them working. Um and uh oh, you know what? That that means I need a power bar. I need to buy a new power bar. Son of a bitch. All right, well, that's a quick run. Um but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring them back. Just have some fun with it. It should be, uh, what else do you say, right? I don't know. Hey, a good compressor. Do you, um, do you think there's any value in, and this is not one of those things we've ever really talked about. So let me steer it towards guitars in your question. Um, in your guitar playing days, mm -hmm. did you ever see the value in, in using different tubes to change the tone of your guitar? I personally never gave a shit. Yeah. Okay. Um, but some guitarists swear by it. Swear by it. I'm a person who just thinks that if it works, use it until right. like it's clear that there's a problem. And then, you know, you might need a rebias or, right. or, or retubing or whatever. I, I, and then in that case, I just bring it to a tech. They, Put whatever it needs in, and I'm happy. It makes sense. I mean, I'm sure the tubes make a difference. Well, or I'm fairly sure they do, in terms of distortion and stuff. What do you What do you think of this theory of mine that um, all these cheap tubes that are out there today, um, that people shit on pretty heavily, uh, they just need a they just need a long burn in time. Maybe. I don't know. Like you, you certainly should be burning in your your tubes for sure. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, let, let, let's face it, tubes are going to change over time. Yeah. But that's, that's one of those, that's one of those things that I suspected uh, or, or that I have long suspected. And I heard Kevin, um, Kevin Ward from Mixcoach. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard him talk about this too. Um, that new tubes, even the cheap ones can sound great as long as you burn them in a whole bunch. Cause I mean, a, a, a tube's life is 20 to 40,000 hours, right? Yeah. That's a long time. That is. Right. And some of these old, some of these old gear, like some of this old gear that we love, those tubes have been in there for years yeah. and burned in a ton. Yeah. I think that's part of the charm. It is. Yeah. Totally is. All right. We'll talk about uh, other things you don't care about next week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you. Follow our hosts on Twitter 
at Two Bodies of Water. You got that mic in a comfortable spot yet? I'm still working on it. At Joey R. Engineer. I can't even talk. I don't remember what my point was. This is a boring podcast. Um, I realize at the end of this, we didn't introduce ourselves. On to the internet you go. Go switch off.